so earlier this week, the staff was talking. Every Tuesday morning, we do a, a feelings check-in because it's Christ City Church, and if you're new to Christ City, we like our feelings. And so um, we were doing a check-in about just how we're doing and what's going on. And we started noticing there was kind of a, a pattern and a theme that everybody was really calm. Everybody was just really like at peace. And then we had to just kind of check and go, wait, isn't this Easter week? Like, isn't this like supposed to be the Super Bowl and New Year's Eve and Christmas all rolled into one for Christians? Like, isn't this a time that we get really hype and high five and like people get really pumped? And everybody's like, yeah. And then we thought, but we aren't there. And then there was this thought going, well, does that mean that we're bad Christians? Does that mean we don't really love Jesus? And then there was just this reality that that, that peace that we had together as a staff was actually a gift because we don't have to hype this up. This is enough. Jesus rising is enough. And so many times in the church, listen, anyone who's been in church longer than a minute, if you grew up here, especially in the Southeast, you know this is supposed to be like the big thing, right? You show up, even if you don't go to church, you still come to church on Easter, right? Because your mom's going to ask you questions and then you don't want to feel like all that shame. So like you're going to show up and you want to be able to be like, check that box. But then you kind of walk away going, all right, that was fine. And you go home. And so many times the church works really hard to catch people with hype. But listen, whatever you catch people with, you got to keep people with, right? And you start finding like that doesn't work. Because if you come here the next Sunday, you'll be like, well, that wasn't near as great as I thought it would be. And I think that that's just a gift that our staff has had this week that our leadership has had this week. And I kept turning that over in my head, that we can just simply be here to celebrate something that is true in space and time, that we have a risen Lord. And then I was talking to, uh, I was doing some counseling with the person at the end of this past week, and they used, to, they used to be a pastor. And they were just like, we were just kind of spending our time together talking through things. And at the end, this person said to me, I'm so glad I don't have to preach this weekend and think of a new way to kind of spin the resurrection and make it exciting. And I thought, oh, thanks. I appreciate the time. Really encouraging for me as well. And I've been sitting with that, honestly, this weekend. And I want you to know something. Um, I'm not interested and I'm not here to get you hyped about Jesus. And this isn't reverse psychology. I, I, it's not even reverse, reverse psychology. I'm even say that out loud. Like, it's okay if you're not. It's okay if you just kind of came here this morning because this is the thing you're supposed to do. It's okay that if you just kind of showed up and rolled in, tired, hopefully I don't go that long, which I might, but hopefully he doesn't go that long. And then we get out of here and get to our lunches and maybe like find some Easter eggs, right? And I think that so many times there's this unneeded and unwanted pressure that we can put on ourselves, the church can try to do to those who show up. And I want you to know there's no spin for me this morning. That if you walk out of here not that convinced about the apologetics of how a human being could rise from the dead, that's okay. If you walk out of here uh, not like getting saved and falling to your knees and crying and, oh, Jesus, thank you, you know what I mean? Like, that's okay. You can just simply be here this morning. And I think that though this passage, if we're willing to even let it examine us, will show us that um, sometimes we just miss God. And sometimes we miss these big moments. 
But if we'll let ourselves sit, I think, in the tension of what this text is showing us, that even those moments where we find ourselves missing him, we can still find something. And it really all boils down to a question. Now, before I get to that question, though, we need to just try to walk slowly up to it and understand what was just happening in context here. Because it's a really, for those women who walked up to that grave early on a Sunday morning, there was so much happening for them, and we need to try to step into their shoes just for a second, or their sandals, and try to understand them, what was happening. I want to look at a few things here. Just look at verse 1. It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, before that, look at the end of chapter 23. And just consider this. It says in verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body, Jesus, was laid in it. And then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. The last moments these women had with Jesus was him screaming. Screaming. Not like, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a really bad situation for me. Screaming. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They saw a human being on a cross being crucified, dismantled, disintegrated in front of them. Everything they had resting on life changing ended in that moment. And then in just a proper way of trying to honor this person, they follow him to the tomb and they see his body and his legs. They see his face being wrapped in a shroud. And they see this several hundred pound boulder being rolled in front of this tomb. And then the Sabbath came. And any good Jewish person then, that means that they could do no work, much less mess with any kind of dead body on the Sabbath. So that means for around 36 hours, they had to live with pain of what they just recognized, what they just saw. Now, let me ask you this. Have, if you've, have you ever been around a person you love dearly and they passed? And all you want to do is stay there. Like you want to be a part of those last few moments, prepping everything, getting everything ready. It's a very normal, natural, humane thing to want to do. And yet they then were stopped, cold, separated, because they were trying to be obedient to the times at hand. So just imagine now, you're these women walking up, and it's early. It says it's early in the morning. That moment when dusk and dawn are kissing each other, it can feel dreary, it can feel cold, or it also can have anticipation. And they start walking up to this tomb. Now these women, we have, we know for three, we know for sure there's three there. There's Mary Magdalene, we know her story. Crazy person, right? Had seven demons cast out, promiscuity, and yet Jesus takes her, redeems her, makes her a part of his posse. This is how we're going to roll. Mary Max is with me. We know we have Joanna. Joanna's husband was a manager in King's Herod's court. So that means like she supposedly was a traitor. She also, we read early on in Luke 8, that she helped bankroll Jesus' ministry. So Jesus had like women like making all this stuff happen. 
We also know there's Mary, the mother of James, Jesus' mother. And they're all walking up. And they all have these feelings. They're crushed inside. And when they come up, they're finding that they go to this tomb. The last place they saw Jesus. The last memory they had is that this tomb was sealed. And so was their, so was their future. Because up to that point, Jesus was rearranging how the world worked, saying that those who were without clout, those without platform now had something, now could finally belong somewhere. They all believed that a Messiah would come, and that's a politically charged word, Messiah, that a Messiah would come and upend the rule of the day and bring finally restitution, respite for God's people. And so they knew that all of their future was sealed up. And it would be enough for them to simply be shaken, to be shocked just by that alone, the trauma, the violence they witnessed. And then we find when they walk up to this grave, there's a few surprises for them. First, in verse 2, it says that they found the, the stone rolled away. Now just think about that. You walk up to this grave and the last thing you saw was that it was closed and now it's open. And just imagine the shock that would be there. Like how did, how many people would it have taken to move this thing anyway? Several, several, several hundred pounds. They're shocked when they see that. Somebody has come and disturbed such a sacred place. That's shock number one, surprise number one. And then they get up to the tomb and they go inside of it and they look. And it's empty. Dead people stay in their place. Dead people don't move. So that means alive people must have moved him. Matter of fact, we read in John's gospel and his narrative that Mary Mags gets so like, concerned by this, she runs straight back and she tells all the disciples grave robbers had come. That was a thing at the time. Grave robbers had come and taken our Lord. But if that wasn't enough shock, if that wasn't enough horror, all of a sudden they're standing there and they look beside them and there's two dudes who are dressed like lightning. That's how the Greek tells it to us. Okay, I don't, I don't know how to explain this to you, except the word used for um, lightning in the Bible means this. So like, it's like lightning was standing beside them, but like lightning was talking to them. Now, I, I don't know about you, but if, if that was me, I think I'd be like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> like way too much, I'm done, I tap out. And these two people then start talking to them. And... And like start, in a sense, prodding them and, and poking them in with this question. Now, before we get to the question, just consider this. It's actually a very Jewish thing that when you bump into a very hard to understand moment, that what you think you want is an answer, right? Like if you come across a hard equation or a hard situation, what you're looking for is an answer. Like if you had a situation happen in your life that wasn't working out and I was somehow a part of it, you would probably come to me and go, hey, like what happened here? But the Jewish 
uh, rhetoric at the time was that when you were dealing with a difficult situation, what you don't need is for someone to give you an answer to the moment. Instead, what you actually need are more questions. Because if someone gives you the answer, it won't be your own, it'll be someone else's. So what they do within Jewish history, the rabbis practice this regularly, is that if you wanted an answer, they would just ask you a question back. Well, what do you think about that? What do you say about that? Let me show you a few places this happens. It's really interesting. So we know in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve mess up, and then God shows up. And you're thinking like, okay, God's about to bring the thunder. Like, you two messed up everything. What are you doing? And when God shows up, he simply asks him a question. Where are you? Where are you? What's happened? A very leading, inviting question. And then we find that they start owning where they are. We see in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is just this man living in Israel. And there's all this commotion happening the Assyrians are coming in to take all of God's people in exile. And then all of a sudden, God appears to him. He sees the throne. He sees angels floating around. And then we have a question given to Isaiah. Whom shall I send? Who will go before me? And then we have even Jesus practicing this. Because in Matthew 16, we had this incredibly huge moment where his followers are with him. And there's rumblings about who Jesus could be. People are talking, talking, talking. He's doing all these signs and wonders. And so um, Jesus asked him a question. Who do people say that I am? And then they start going through a list of things. Elijah, prophet, Jeremiah, who knows. And so they're waiting like, okay, you're going to tell us. And so Jesus asked them, well, who do you say that I am? And in that question, everything changed for them because they had to then own something they were wondering about, and that is that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter comes back and says, you're the son of God. You're the one who's come to change everything for us. And in that moment, all of God's followers started owning something. They started owning something. And that is Jesus was there to change everything, that all their hopes now could be put on him. And so here we have a simple question in verse 5. It says, why do you look for the living among the dead? Now, there are a few layers to how this question could work. I think that it's important that um, we kind of give space for a question like this because it doesn't just apply to these women. But let's just consider first what it would mean to them. At base, this question is simply just trying to go, hey, let's just try to use some common sense here. And it can really seem kind of cruel. I think there's a condescending part to the question. Like, I think the angels are condescending. That's what I think. And maybe that just works for angels in general. So these angels, I think, were condescending. Like, duh, what are you doing here? Like, he's already left, you know? And you're like, who are you, right? Um, all the trauma they've been through, of course, like, you're not going to be thinking in your right mind. It doesn't matter what's going on if you just wish, witnessed a vicious murder and all your hopes and dreams are dashed. You're not going to go like, hmm, let me think about something reasonable here. Like, the angels, there's a, there's a condescending tone to it, I think. 
It's like they're, they're saying to them straight up, why are you looking for a living person in a cemetery? I mean, that's what it's saying in, in the Greek. Why are you looking for a living person in a cemetery? Why have you walked up to a grave thinking you're going to find a person when the person you're looking for is living? There's also like another layer that's actually pretty reasonable. Because what they're stating in that question is this, that Jesus is alive. They even say it afterwards. He is risen. Jesus is alive. And in that, he has conquered everything that there is. So what are you doing here? Don't you remember everything he told you? Don't you remember everything that he was trying to say forever and time and again? All those times you were following him and listening to him and he was going on and on in his teachings. Didn't you listen? Don't you remember? He said he was going to rise again. That if you tear this temple down, I'll build it back in three days. They were trying to poke and poke and prod and go, don't forget something that you already know. Remember that death can't win. Remember that life, life itself, matter of fact, the, the word in the Greek they use for the living is zeo, which would be like right next to and a cousin of the word zoe. And that doesn't really mean anything to you except in the Greek, whenever Jesus, we talked about this in our sermon series beginning of this year on the divinity of Jesus, one of his statements that he made about himself is, I am life, I am Zoe. Like, I'm the life life. I'm the thing that can change everything in your life. And so they take from that word here in the Greek, and the angels realize that, and they go, the Zoe, the life, has become the Zeo, the living person. That this is real. It's actualized. It's not just a theory. It's not just a good idea. It is now here and now. And they're leaning into these women saying, listen, what you thought was true still is. What you were hoping could be a reality now is. Simply they're saying to them, life can't lose. Life can't lose. Don't you remember this? You were with the life and he kept talking about how he's gonna win. Like life can't lose. I think that's like that kind of first approach to the question. Sorry, a little dry. But I think at second glance, there's another layer, another level to this force. Because if they're saying, why are you looking for a living person in a cemetery? I think the question for us that's kind of underneath that, that we can maybe ponder the rest of our time is this. Why are you looking for life in dead places? Like, why are you looking for life in dead places? So there's your question. Here's our question this morning. No spin, just what's here in the text. Why do we keep looking for life in dead places? I think it's a very appropriate question for us because in the Southeast, everything's just kind of Christianized. Like you grew up a Christian. Like you're just, like, you know, like you were born a Christian. It's like your mama and your daddy raised you, so you got to be a Christian. You don't really have a choice in it. 
but then you're not really sure if you want that or not. But like, you're supposed to show up to church and do these things and sing these songs. Like, we're supposed to be good Christians. And yet the reality is, especially in our part of town here in Midtown, people move here to get away from all that. Like, you moved here to get away from all that. You moved here to get away from all the talk and all the smoke and all the whatever else that you thought you were given. You had someone else's faith given to you, perhaps. Not saying that's you, but there's a chance that some people in here, somebody else just kind of gave you their faith, and it's supposed to be your own. And there's a question I think that's appropriate for us then, no matter where we are, and that is, like, so what are you going to do with all that? Like, why do you keep looking for life in dead places. I think there's a few things here to us consider. I think there's three different kinds of people that we can associate with here this morning. And there ends up being like a fourth, like if you're just a really special person and you don't line up on here, we can talk afterwards about that. But I think like, I think there's a few ways that we can relate to this. I think first there are those in this room, I think there are first those in this room that life just gets really hard and we get sidetracked. Now just consider for a second. These women, these disciples, rolled with Jesus for years. Like they rolled with Jesus for years. They were with him in all these situations. They saw the signs and wonders. They heard the teaching straight from him. You ever thought this before? Like if, you know what, I'd believe if I just like saw him. Like if I just, if you're standing right here instead of Robin and he was giving this message, Okay, show me, show me the wounds. Okay, all this stuff. Okay, then I, that would be it. But here's what we find is that these people walked with Jesus and learned from Jesus for years. And even still in this moment, that was not enough for them. And I started thinking about this like there's a chance and there's a way that you can know all the verses, know all the creeds. You can talk the talk and still miss it. And I hated thinking that. Like, there's a way in this world that you can like hear all these things, grow up in all this atmosphere, this Christendom in the Southeast, and still miss it. It's convicting. And I think though for a lot of us, I think we end up missing it at times simply because we get sidetracked. The great prophet, Mike Tyson once said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. I think sometimes life just punches you in the face and you're following as best as you can and you get sidetracked. And I think for those of us in this room that just get sidetracked, you know who you are. Like just life happens, you're like, oh gosh, you want to take a break from Jesus. So you take a, like a two or three month break, right? And you come back, oh, life happens again, you get sidetracked. I think that's just part of life. I don't think you get to like circumvent that and figure that thing out. I think you just kind of have to roll with it. Life keeps giving punches, and eventually you start getting used to it and realizing, maybe I don't have to leave as quickly. Maybe I can stay here a little bit longer. Maybe he's still for me. I think that's why community is so important. I think that's why disciplines are so important. Because they tell us that no matter what happens, you can still remember that this can kind of create an ecosystem for you to still connect with God. So if that's you this morning, I want you to know that if you're looking for life in dead places, 
Like, okay, that's okay. Just remember, come back to the gospel. Come back to the truth. But I think there's also others in this room that it's not that you just get sidetracked from life. I think that there's others of us in this room, and I know I can relate to this, we just get to believe that we can find life elsewhere. We just straight up make a decision, I can find life elsewhere. I was thinking about this uh, throughout the week, that in different stages, so I came to know Jesus at a young age, like five years old, and um, I just knew, I just knew I wanted Jesus. It was crazy. I grew up in this kind of atmosphere, this Christian atmosphere where I was just kind of given it at a young age and I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I'll do that. As much as my little limited cognitive mind could make a decision at five years old, right? At the end of the day, who really trusts any five-year-old? They're all sneaky, right? So, (laughs) but the best I could, I was like going, okay, I think so. And then as I started growing up, just in adolescence, being a child, I realized that what I really wanted out of life was like friends. I just wanted friends. I wanted to belong to the cool crowd. I wanted to be able to like people see me in the hallway and wave at me, right? Not make fun of me, right? Oh, there's the guy with the girl's name. I mean, stuff like that. Like I just wanted that kind of stuff. And so I would like be like, oh, Jesus, or like really belonging to cool people. Okay, uh, I'll see you after school, Jesus. You know what I mean? And like jump in with that. I think that's pretty normal. Am I the only one? Oh, don't lie at church. Okay, so, I, like, I think that's a normal thing to be like, ah, just Jesus is great. I like him on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Oh, my gosh, every service. But I think that when I'm at school, I just want something different. But then as I got older, um, as a teenager, especially kind of heading into college, I wanted to get life out of what I did. Like sports, academics, being looked at as a really good person. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you were the opposite. Maybe it was sports, academics, and just being a really bad person. I don't know. But like we just try to find identities in those things. You try to start setting your own path in life. You're thinking it's going to give you some life. And then you find it's a dead place. I started thinking about in my 20s that what I wanted more than anything else in my 20s is I wanted to find that right career like that right path start going down, that thing I could put my hand to, and I would be like really successful at it. And I would spend all my time in my 20s trying to find this right thing. I mean, our church is filled with 20-year-olds. You can relate to this, I know. I hear it from you. Like, what am I supposed to do with my life, right? And we create these systems in North America where we say that just go to school for a few years and in four years you'll figure it out. That doesn't work, right? So, I mean... It's just one of those things. And you keep thinking, like, if I could just find that right thing to do with my life, like, then I'll get life out of it. And you find that you get it. If you haven't got yet, I'm sure you'll get it, hopefully. So, like, you get it and you go, not giving it to me. I found another, like, dead spot, dead zone, a dead space. So then I got to my 30s. And I thought, if I could be recognized for my craft, recognized that something, what I'm good at, that people look at that and go, oh, man, I want to I talk to him. He's a resource, right? I want to pick his brain. I want to kind of get to know him. I just thought, if I could have that, if I could have people come to me and just want to get stuff from me, that then, like, that would give me life. And I found that that didn't work as well. 
And here's the deal, I'm not gonna own 40. I know I don't look it, but I'm not gonna own 40. And I'm like, will this ever end? Will it ever end that I keep trying to find life in dead places? And I feel like it won't. And all I can do is just kind of talk about it and try to own it. But I think for a lot of us, we get to these places where we go, I just think I just want life from that instead of you. Like, I just don't know if you work that well after all. And I think that's a really lonely place to be because I don't think the church does a good job of giving people space to be able to ask those kind of questions, to talk about that kind of stuff out loud. Like, I don't think this is for me, but I'm going to try it out, but then I think I'll give it up, but I'll come back to it. Because you got to know that you know that you know. But even as Jamin said earlier, if you're here this morning because of the resurrection and you know for sure, hallelujah. And if you're here this morning and you're still doubting, hallelujah. That this can still be a place to belong, a place where you can still get to know God. Because I think, okay, so just think about the passage. It wasn't like the angels were saying to them, don't be stupid and keep forgetting. It's like they didn't, their opening line wasn't like, you dumb girls, you didn't get this. Give me a break. Ah. I think instead what they were trying to get across was this. You probably won't remember until you forget, and then you can re-up. I actually think life is rigged with God in this way as humans. I don't think we get to know him more until we start doubting him more. I don't think we get to know him more until we keep failing at life more and more. I think it's just the way it works. I don't think anybody gets a crystallized view of how the world works and who God is at a young age, and it always sticks with them, and they never, like, press into it. I think you have to keep, and I don't mean, like, well, I'm going to run away from, okay, Robin Gray, I'm going to run, run away from Jesus this week, and I'll see you next Easter. I'm not saying that. Don't walk away from here and saying the, the preacher gave me permission to walk away from Jesus. Nope, nope, not on Easter. <laughs> but I think it's rigged in that way where you have to put your doubts out there and question things. But I think in those doubts that you keep trying to find life in dead places, when you come out of that, there's a lot of life waiting for you. Once again, it's called grace. I think Rob Bell said it best. He goes, it's in that place that we're reminded that true life comes when we're willing to admit that we've reached the end of ourselves. We've given up. We've let go. We're willing to die to all our desires and figure it out and be in control. We lose our life only to find it. I think our friends, our brothers and sisters in the recovery community get it a lot faster at times because they realize the very first thing they have to grasp is that they're powerless, that life is unmanageable, that it just doesn't make sense, and therefore they need help. I think the church can learn something from that. So I would say if you're in that second place, you're at a good place. There's still lots of room for you to find life. But then I think there's a last part of us, a last group. And this is a really sensitive area to be. And it's a really lonely area to be. That sometimes we just get to a place where we think it doesn't work for us at all. Like not just that I don't think I want this, but you just become convinced this doesn't work anymore. And this is kind of that last drop, that last level that says, okay, I recognize in my 
disorder of life. Okay, so everybody comes to this world with an ordered box, right? Like everybody comes to this world with a box you're given. And this box is whatever it may be. You grew up in this part of the world to this family. You have these views, this belief. But then you start like growing up, go to college, get out of college. And you start going like, that box doesn't really fit me that well. So then you have to go to a second box called disorder. And it's really the second group I talked about and this last group that you find yourselves in these disordered boxes. That life just looks different. You, you start meeting people who say they love Jesus, but they're not like the same as you. You start finding their thinking about life in different ways. But don't you have these same doctrines? No, not necessarily, but yeah, but like a little bit different. And you're going, what do I do with this? And you either run back to your ordered box you were given, or you start learning to kind of go like, maybe this is like where I need to be in life. But a lot of times what happens is people forget that that disordered box is meant to be reordered. That we're not meant to just live in disorder. You have to go through disorder, but you're meant now to have a reordered life. And I think a lot of us get to this box, this third, the second box, and we go, you know what? I think I'm just kind of done. Like I'll show up to church because I got to call my mama and tell her I went to church, but I'm just really done. It doesn't fit me anymore. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. There's no chance for a resurrection. Like it's just crazy. And then people just kind of preach at me and tell me how I have to believe it. So I don't want that. I want to get around people who actually want to be kind and loving and not like act like they're kind and loving, but then talk about me behind my back. I want to get around people who actually say they want to care for the needs of the world instead of talking about the needs of the world, but never do anything about it. I think that's a real group. I, I remember about a year ago, I, I heard somebody talking about this, and it, it just, it's been sticking to my ribs ever since. And they were saying that I'm less interested in what you believe, and I'm more interested in how that's working for you. Like, I'm less interested in what you believe and I'm just more interested in, like, how does that work for you? Like, I felt like that should be the motto of Midtown, right? That's the motto of this area we're in. Like, I don't really care that you call yourself X, Y, and Z things, that you have these labels. I'm just more interested in, does that work for you? Do you enjoy your life more? Do you have more peace and serenity? Do you find that you can, like, engage life instead of trying to get away from life? I think people are asking those kind of questions. How's that working for you? I think people who are not here this morning don't even realize it, and they're asking that question whenever you meet them in their head. Going, I'm not interested in what you believe. I'm just more interested in like how you live this out. And if I like how you live it out, we can talk more. Maybe that makes sense for me. And it took me back to, as I was considering this, to an old band I used to... Uh, I used to listen to before they dis disbanded. Uh, they were called Pedro the Lion. You have to be in your late 30s to know this, okay? So anyone younger than 35, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and this is when indie was indie, right? Like, it's not like oh, I'm really indie. No, you're not. Like, th this is indie. Hardly anybody knew about it. And it was this band from the Northwest. And the, the story is, as you got to know the band more, was the lead singer's name was David Bazan. David grew up in a Christian home. He grew up in a strong, his father was a pastor. He was given all the, the right doctrines and right views and right beliefs. And um, actually what came out years later about 09 was that he had to walk away from his faith 
because it didn't work for him anymore. It just didn't make sense. And I remember reading that and then being reminded of a song that he had written years before that interview in 09, years before. And the title of the song is Secret of the Easy Yoke. I just want to put it on the screen for you. I want you to, to be able to read the words yourself. He said, I could hear the church bells ringing. They pealed aloud your praise. The members' faces were smiling with their hands outstretched to shake. It's true, they did not move me. My heart was hard and tired. Their perfect fire annoyed me. I could not find you anywhere. He goes on to say, the devoted were wearing bracelets to remind them why they came. Some concrete motivation when the abstract could not do the same. But if all that's left is duty, I'm falling on my sword. At least then I would not serve an unseen distant Lord. I think what happens for a lot of us is that at one point in time, you really wanted to give life a chance, like Zoe, life that is life. You really wanted that to make sense and work. And then you started bumping into all the like shots to the face, all the things that like disoriented you. And you kept thinking like, is there going to be more life after this? And you start going through consistencies of this time and again, getting punched in the face, life not working out, where's life? It's actually called the book of Job. It's a great book, a hard book to read. You got a guy at the beginning, his name's Job, who has it all together. Life's worked out for him. And then everything goes into this disorder. So he calls his friends up. His friends were good Christian Israelites, not Christian, good Israelites. And they're like, just believe these things. This is who God is. And he found it just so hollow. Like their perfect fire annoyed him. And then Job has to just get away from his friends and then finally go to this real place where he just questioned God himself. Not, I'm going to question God to a friend. Not, I'm going to say this in passing, but God, where are you? If you give so much life, where are you? If this is supposed to make sense, where are you? And then we have this beautiful moment where God answers him. God shows up and says, who is this that darkens my presence with his words? Uh-oh. <laughs> and then there's this place where God starts tenderly asking him these questions. Where were you? Where were you when I created these deer that gave birth to these does? Like, where, where were you when I created X, Y, and Z? Where were you? And then in these questions, Job starts wrestling going, wait a second, maybe there's more life here than what I thought. And then one of those beautiful verses in the Bible to me, Job 42 verse 5, it says, my ears have always heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Have your ears always heard of him? This is not going to lead to some kind of altar call, don't worry. Have your ears always heard of him? And you just find yourself going, I don't know about that. I just got to walk away from this. Like, have your ears always heard of him because of how you've been hurt by the church? And trust me, we do a good job of that. Of that. that you've met Christians who go, I don't, oh, gosh, how can they be so um, hypocritical? 
You see the scandals, the scandals that happen in any and every church. And you think, I just don't know about that for me. But then you also find yourself going, but I just want life. And I'm tired of always finding myself in dead places, dead relationships, dead means of like this job's going to give me something, dead means of this person's going to bring fulfillment or this child that I have is going to bring fulfillment. You just get tired of the dead places. Sometimes you got to get tired of the dead places before you want life. So are you tired of the dead places? If so, you're in the right place. In your bulletin, a writer and thinker, Terrence Klein, he said, today the resurrection is preached in a world grown weary. One that tells us that we are insignificant motes in a mindless cosmic process. We are told that the best that we can do is to leave something of this world to the next generation of this sad world. And if the life of an individual begins to appear harsher than death, death should be chosen, either by or for the individual. Yet the resurrection reveals that our lives matter, that they have a purpose and a destiny, as surely as did that of Jesus. Indeed, that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We are not momentary sparks of spirit in mindless matter, destined only for decay and death. In Christ and his resurrection, the destiny of the cosmos has been revealed. The resurrection says, no matter what dead place you find yourself looking for life, you can stop. That you can actually now have life. That he'll come and meet you where you are. Because the flip side of that question is true. You may not be able to find life in dead places, but life can come to you in dead places. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning now that as we come before your table that whatever dead places we find ourselves in, maybe there's a chance now for some life. That we come to your table that says life is available. Life is here. That you can bring the worst of you and receive the best of me. So that's what I ask for. For those this morning here that have just had some hard shots from life and they're ready to kind of re-up. For those in here who have made conscious decisions saying, I want Jesus, but I just don't think he's going to give me the life I'm looking for. And even for those in here that have said, I just don't want that anymore. That wherever we may be, whatever dead places we find ourselves in, these cemeteries, that you would make yourself real to us, clear to us, compel us by the life that is you, Jesus, that you are risen, you are risen indeed. And that resurrection, that reality changes everything. In your name we pray, amen.